بعده الذي نصطفى أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدينهم سبلنا صدق الله العظيم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he is the one that is worthy of being praised We praise him for having guided us for having granted us iman for giving us so many bounties and blessings and we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and upon his family and his progeny and his wives and his companions and all those that followed them <coughs> last week we left off we finished al-razaq so this week inshallah the next name that is covered is al-fatah so al-fatah means the opener now fatah is a it is derived from the word fat and fat has a lot of different meanings. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says in the Qur'an, وَسِعَ رَبُّنَا كُلَّ شَيْءٍ ilma." That the knowledge of our Lord over everything is very wide and vast. Allahi tawakkalna And we put our trust in Allah. رَبَّنَا نَفْتَحْ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَ قَوْمِنَا بِالْحَقِّ That, O oh our Lord, iftah بَيْنَنَا Judge between us and between our people with truth and with justice. وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْفَاتِحِينَ That you are the best of judges. So Fatah, although it means the opener, one of the meanings of Fatih is a judge. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He is the judge of all things. Now we will get into when we discuss the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Adal, then, you know, and Hakam, then we will go further into that discussion. But basically, Fatah, the meaning of this name is that, or how it is manifested is that the different paths of our life are blocked, either in a worldly sense or in a spiritual sense. Paths are blocked for us. So this can be, Imam Ghazali, he says, this can be regarding jobs and professions, uh, places, possessions, gains, losses, friends, that we want to attain some of these things, but the path is blocked to us. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Fattah. He is the one that opens the way. So if we need a job, the path seems blocked. And nowadays we can understand this, right? That so many people, they're so qualified, yet they have a difficult time in finding a job. So who's the one that will come to aid and make that opening for us? It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That, you know, there have been people, I knew an individual who was, uh, he had two master's degrees. He had his bachelor's, he had two master's degrees, and he was out of a job for five years. And you'd think that, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you should get a master's. Why? Because it makes you more qualified, it makes you more in demand. And so people want to, you're more likely to get a job. This individual had two master's degrees. Five years he was without a job. And what was the excuse that the companies were giving him was, you're overqualified. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even in that, in that moment, that is a block. The path is blocked for us. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we seek His assistance and His help. He is the one that opens that path for us. You know, there was a time when uh, the way you would get a job was by having some network. You know somebody who works for the company, you pass along your resume, they pass it on to somebody else higher up uh, who might have an opening. And you know, through some inroad, you get a job. 
Now, that's usually not the case. How do people typically get jobs now? You have recruiters. Right? Recruiters are, are there, and they go and they find you, and they already know what types of jobs are necessary uh, or you know, need an employee. So they go and they find you. This networking, unless you're networked with the recruiters, it doesn't really work the same way it was before. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that opening. Then there's also matters of the heart, the spiritual world. And we also have blocks in, with our heart. What happens? Some difficulty overcomes us. So we are grieved. We have sadness. Our minds cannot understand something. We have questions and we don't know the answer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also is the opener for these types of things as well. So if you have a doubt or you have a question or you have some sadness, isn't it that when we're, when we're grieved, if we're grieving, it literally feels like your heart is tied up, right? If anybody has been in an extreme amount of sadness, it feels like your heart is knotted. So there are these knots, both physically, spiritually, worldly, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that opens them. Now sometimes Allah ta'ala opens them in ways that we do not know. So what happened in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he had a dream that the Muslims would, after having been expelled from Makkah, that they would go back to Makkah and they would make tawaf, that they would make hajj. And so in the eighth year of Hijri, so eight years after the Muslims went to Medina Munawwara, they decided, let's go for Umrah. They went, and as they came on the outskirts of Makkah, the Quraysh came out and stopped them. And the Muslims were not able to, they were not allowed to come in to the city, they were not allowed to perform their Umrah. And so they, a, a peace treaty was signed. And what did the peace treaty say? Anybody know? Yeah. Uh, there was the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, right? Right, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Right, so, so these were, that's good, mashallah. So these were some of the things, right, that the Muslims would not be allowed to perform their Umrah this year, they would come back the next year. And one of the main things that a lot of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ thought uh, was unfair was that they said, the Quraysh said that anybody who leaves Makkah and goes to Medina and becomes Muslim, then you have to return him to us. But anybody that leaves Medina and comes to Makkah, we don't have to return him to you. So the, the Rasulullah he said, okay, he agreed to these terms. And the Muslims felt really dejected. They, were, they felt at a loss. They thought, this is not fair. So after the Muslims left, Umar anhu, he goes to the Prophet, so he goes to Abu Bakr anhu, first, and he says that, you know, oh, Abu Bakr, isn't Islam, isn't Islam the right way? Isn't Islam the way of truth? And Abu Bakr says, yes, of course. So Umar anhu, then says, then, you know, why are we, why are we on the bottom end? Or why are we at the, at the, on the downside of this treaty, it looks, it looks like? So Abu Bakr said, look, basically he said, have trust in Allah, have trust in the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Umar was not satisfied. He went to Rasulullah, sallallahu he asked him the same questions. And Rasulullah, sallallahu gave him exactly the same answer that Abu Bakr, gave. And Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, upon this, he, he, he revealed the verses, إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُبِينًا that indeed we have granted you a manifest victory. This fat, this opening. We have made an open and manifest victory for you. So that we so that Allah may forgive you your sins, what has passed and what is 
what will come in the future. And so that he may complete his favor upon you and he may guide you to the straight path. And Allah Ta'ala will definitely help you with a mighty help. So it looked like the Muslims, what happened? They were not able to go and perform their umrah. What they set out to do, they felt it was at a loss. They, they felt that they failed. And on top of that, the peace treaty looked to be in a lot, in much more favor to the non-Muslims, to the Quraysh, who were fighting and at war with the Muslims. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called that a manifest victory. And what happened after that? In the entire time, up until then, it was about 20 years or so, 20 years approximately of prophethood. There were very few people that had become Muslim. Medina, Munawwara had you know, domin- predominantly become Muslim, but very few people outside of that. After the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, by the thousands, the m- people entered into Islam. By the thousands. Because of this peace treaty, Islam, the Muslims were able to go around freely to other cities. By the thousands. And then what happened? What happened? A year later, this was, I, this was sorry, uh, 7 Hijri. So 8 Hijri then was the conquest of Makkah. The Muslims then came back. Sorry, that was yeah, 6 or 7 Hijri. 8th Hijri, the Muslims came back into Makkah Mukarramah by the thousands. Right, numbers that they had never experienced before. Allah Ta'ala made that opening when it looked like the path was blocked. So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, He works in different methods. And He is the one that opens the path for us. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says further in the Qur'an, وَإِنَّهُ مَفَاتِحُ الْغَيْبِ لَا يَعْلَمُهَا إِلَّا هُ That with Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala are the keys, the treasures of the unseen. And nobody knows about it except Him. وَيَعْلَمُ مَا فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ فَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ أَبْوَابَ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ that he knows what is in the earth and he knows what is in the oceans. And we have opened, we will open them, we have opened the doors of everything. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about both in a worldly sense and in a, uh, and in a spiritual sense. That there are these treasures that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created in the universe. And Allah ta'ala opens the doors to them, to whoever he wishes. So we have to, what do we have to do? Imam Uzali rahimullah, he says that we have to stand at the door of mercy. And we have to continuously knock on it. And we have to keep knocking. And we have to keep asking Allah. We have to keep beseeching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what is that uh, knock of the knock that we have to do on the door of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That is, Imam Ghazali rahimullah explains, through our generosity. So we have things that need to be accomplished. We have tasks at hand that we cannot fulfill on our own. We cannot accomplish on our own. We need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to open the way. We have to knock at that door of mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That when that door opens, the mercies come and descend upon us. How do we do that? He says through our generosity. We have to help the weak so that we have to help the weak so that we are not oppressed by the strong. He says we have to help those that fall so that when we fall, we are also helped. That we shouldn't look down on anyone, we should try and make an opening for people. One of my teachers, he said that, you know, if you ever have a need that has to be fulfilled, then go and fulfill the need of someone else. So he used to give us a, um, he gave us an example. We, my school was near uh, Durban. And there was a, a bus that would go from Durban to Johannesburg. It was like six, six and a half hour bus ride. And the ticket, bus ticket was like 80 rands or something like that. Or No, no, sorry, it was like 250 rands. So he said, if you have a need, for example, you have a need to get to Johannesburg, and you only have 50 rands in your pocket, the ticket's 250 rands. He said, go and help somebody. Spend that little bit of money you have and help someone out. When you help someone out with their need, fulfill their need, then he said, mark my words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will open the door for you and fulfill your need. And his example, we might not understand this, this particular example, but 
when I was in my second to last year, he was one of our main teachers, taught us high-level books. He, uh, he had some spinal problem, and the doctors told him, you're never going to walk again. You'll never walk again. So they started giving him injections, and the injections would numb the pain, and it would, whatever it would do, stimulate the nerves and whatnot, and he, was able, he, would, he would walk for some time, and they would say, you know, this is only going to last for a little while, then you're done. So he found somebody, he knew somebody, who the husband's legs were broken and he wasn't able to drive on his own and he wasn't able to um, go out and you know, get groceries and these types of things. So what my teacher would do is he would go and take their entire family out and he would sit in the car with the, with the husband, the father, and the rest of the family, the wife and the kids and whatnot, they would go and do all their shopping, whatever there was needed to be done. And my teacher said, he goes, I know that it's because of this that although despite the doctors told me I'll never walk again, today I'm walking. And he would walk into class. Even today, it's been a few years now, he, has, he continues doing these types of things. He has heart attacks every other week. Like he has a heart attack and he walks out of class, he has a minor heart attack and he goes to the hospital. He says, I need to check in the ER because I had a heart attack. And they don't believe him. He says, I'm telling you, I've had so many, I know what I had when I had a heart attack. They'll check him and they'll say, this is crazy, you had a heart attack. <laughs> right? So what is Imam Ghazali Rahimullah saying? He's saying that help others and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will then help you. That this is that knocking at the door of mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the biggest thing, he says, is do not hurt anyone. Because that is the main cause of the, of the locking of that door. That we want the door of mercy to be opened. If we cause somebody pain, then that will be the main cause Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will lock that door. Because of our causing pain to the heart of another individual. When we talk about what's halal, what's permissible, and what's haram, impermissible, it's haram to cause pain. It's haram, it's forbidden to hurt somebody else. Not only physically, but emotionally. And this is a big reason as to why we are not able to perform the tasks that we need, or you know, uh, uh, complete the tasks that we need, fulfill the needs that we have. Because we are so careless of everybody else's needs, everybody else's emotions. We don't mind you know, hurting people left and right. So we should at least not hurt anybody. And then if we want to hasten the door of mercy opening up, then we will go and we should try and help the weak so that we do not become oppressed by the strong. And so that when we fall, then somebody is there to help us also. Right? Like, you know, the, I forgot his name. Maybe you guys will remember. It was, it's a very famous poem that was written by somebody who survived the concentration camps. And... Um, I can't remember his name right now, but he said, you know, when they came for the, when they came for the Jews, then nobody, you know, I didn't mind because I wasn't a Jew, and when they came for these people, I didn't mind because I wasn't from them, and when they came for these people, I didn't mind because I wasn't from them, but then when the Nazis came for me, there was no one left to stand up for me. You guys heard that poem? Right, the author was a survivor of the, of the concentration camps. So basically he says that when the Nazis were going and they were... Uh, oppressing everybody else well I didn't stand up because they were oppressing that particular group and so it didn't apply to me so I didn't care much but when the time came that they uh, started oppressing people like me there was no one else left to stand for me so this is why Imam Ghazali he says that help the weak so that the strong do not oppress you right? so you come to the aid of anyone and this is be it Muslim or non-Muslim it doesn't matter if somebody is oppressed even if a Muslim is the oppressor that's more reason that we have to stand up and say look you're Muslim, you should know better, and you're oppressing the non-Muslims, then you stand up and correct them. Yeah. So does this help for like other sects of Islam, like to stand up for them? Like yeah. Muslim-majority Yeah, anybody that's being oppressed, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Rasulullah said that when, 
that there is no veil, there's no intermediary between the oppressed person and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the ulama state from this, meaning that if a person is oppressed and they supplicate to Allah for help, right, well, usually what happens, they supplicate against the tyrant, against the oppressor. Then there's no intermediary between that person and Allah. The ulama, one of the things they note from this hadith is they say that Rasulullah didn't say an oppressed Muslim. That there's no intermediary between an oppressed Muslim and, the, and, the, and Allah. He just said an oppressed person. So that even if a non-Muslim supplicates to Allah, there's still no intermediary between them and Allah. Allah Ta'ala will come to the aid of whoever is oppressed. So whenever there's oppression happening, you have to stand up for them. Right? We have to stand up for them. <clears throat> and then Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, He says, مَا يَفْتِحِ اللَّهُ لِلنَّاسِ مِنْ رَحْمَةٍ فَلَا مُمْسِكْ لَهَا That whatever, whatever mercy, whatever doors Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala opens, whatever... Whatever opening of mercy Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has for the people, فَلَا مُمْسِكَ لَهَا That nobody can hold it back. وَمَا يُمْسِكْ فَلَا مُرْسِلَ لَهُ That and whoever, uh, whatever Allah ta'ala has held back, nobody can send that mercy. مِنْ بَعْدِهِ After Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has held it back. وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ And He is the Almighty, the All-Wise. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because He is Al-Fattah, when He opens that door of mercy for anybody, nobody can stop it. And when He closes that door of mercy, nobody can open it up. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that acts and is in control of everything. Then Imam Ghazali rahimahullah, he says that, uh, he says that we have to strive. We have to make such an effort to attain perfection, whereby we are able to solve our own problems and help others solve, solve theirs. So this action, this act of striving is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبُلَنَا that indeed those who strive in our way, we will definitely and most certainly we will guide them to our path. There is so many superlatives and emphasis in this, in this verse. Allah SWT says, whoever strives, whoever puts forth a great amount of effort to come near us, to come into our way, then we will definitely guide this individual. So Imam Ghazali says that we have to put so much effort in that we are able to attain such perfection that we can solve our own problems and help others solve theirs. And then he mentions, how does this occur? This occurs by gaining knowledge and then striving in that knowledge and being able to solve the both religious and worldly affairs of people that have difficulty. So we have to gain knowledge. Right? If you want to solve the worldly problems of people, you, actually, you should have knowledge of religion, but also you should have knowledge of the world and you know how things work. And then spiritually, of course, that's totally, you know, you, you have to have knowledge of the, of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to have spiritual knowledge as well so that you can guide people and solve their spiritual problems. Right? And then solving spiritual problems is not uh, separate from psychological issues. Sometimes people have psychological issues. Like for example, you guys might hear people saying that uh, you know, um, if, if a person is depressed, that means their relationship with Allah is not strong. So then we might think, oh, what are you saying? That there's no such thing as depression? No, there is. Depression is obviously, it's a very real thing. So many people can testify to that. It's a very real thing. However, if we strengthen our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it can protect us against depression. Right? That doesn't mean that if, our, if we do go into a depressed state, that there's not like, psychological help that isn't needed. Right? If you reach that state, we should employ both. We should, you know, our, in Urdu we say dawa, right? Dawa and dua. Dawa is medicine. So you seek the medical means to come out of whatever problems and ailments you're having, and also the spiritual means, also supplicating to Allah, doing your adhkar, these different types of things. So both are necessary. 
and the nidham, the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not such that we remove the medical uh, aspect of it. Right? Like we discussed last week, Al-Razzaq, and we shared the, the example of Musa al-Islam, when he was sick, he went to the tree. Right? What happened? Allah ta'ala told him, go to the tree and you will find the cure in that tree for your sickness. Right? We gave that story last week. So we have to, uh, we should have a knowledge base of both the religion and the way the world works. And it's not separate from this. The ulama were always, they had a, they had a mastery and a, gra- well, a strong grasp over, over both things. Then Imam Zayd, rahmanullah, so he says, how do, we, uh, how do we attain this perfection to solve our problems and help others? Number one, he said, occurs, this occurs by gaining knowledge and striving in that knowledge. And then he said, it should, what should the result of this be? The result should be that it should bring about beautiful manners within us. And it should allow us to maintain an attitude of a beautiful anticipation of the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That we should always be expecting to receive the bounties of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we should abandon haste. So when we stand, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-fatah. When we stand at that door hoping for the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then we should abandon haste. Don't, don't, uh, don't think that it's required or necessary that this need of yours will be fulfilled instantly. That's not how it works. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says what? وَبَشِّرِ الصَّابِرِ And give glad tidings to the patient ones. So patience is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see with us. He wants to see this quality within us. But we should have anticipation and hope that Allah ta'ala will open the door. And if we have this type of patience and we you know, constantly have a good outlook on life and are optimistic and we have our, put our trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then when, that, when, when al-fatah is manifest and that door opens, then al-wahhab will also be manifest. And we discussed wahhab, right? Then the gifts and the, the giver of Allah, the, the aspect of Allah Ta'ala giving will, man, will be uh, manifest to us. Any questions? And so the next name Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Zahidi rahimullah brings is al-alim. So al-alim means the omniscient. What does omniscient mean? O-M-N I-S-C-I-E-N-T All-knowing, yeah. Did you get that from Alim or did you get it from Omniscient? <laughs> I got it from Okay. <laughs> right, so Omniscient means the all-knowing. Absolute knowledge. Absolute knowledge. Now, we discussed this before. I don't know if you guys, did, you know, when I talked about it like a few months back. So Alim is like this, Right? Aliman. This is how the name comes. We mentioned before that the scale, the Arabic scale that this is on, is known as Balir. Sorry, that's not Balir. So, meaning, you see how it's similar that you have this Ain. Lam and Mim are the root letters. Ba, Lam, and Ghain are the root letters. Right? This Ya comes as the third letter in both words. Okay? So, you'll find a lot of words in, the, uh, in Arabic that are similar to Balir. You just replace the Ba, Lam, and Ghain. Right? So, you'll get Alim, you'll get Sami', you'll get Basir. Right? All of these different names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and other names and other words that fit the same scale as Balir, but you just change some of the letters. So when something comes in the balir form, meaning it fits this scale, it means exaggerated. Right? That's the quality. That's the quality that that word gets. So alim comes from ilm, right? And ilm is 
but knowledge. So when you put ilm into the form of alim, it gives the idea of an exaggerated amount of knowledge. This gives us the understanding that Allah Ta'ala's knowledge is absolute. It is absolute. <clears throat> so Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, He says, when He, uh, in Surah Al-Baqarah, when He's giving the, um, the, the story of Adam Al-Islam, when He created Adam Al-Islam, then uh, he, ta- he teaches, you know, first what, what happens, the angels question Allah Ta'ala. They say that, you know, Ya Allah, will you create someone in the land who spreads mischief and corruption and who sins? Whereas we glorify you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, you know, you don't know that which I know. Then He creates Adam alayhisam. And He teaches Adam alayhisam uh, the names of everything. And then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He brings Adam alayhisam forward and He brings the angels forward and He asks the angels, what are the names? What are these different names of these things? The angels, they say, قَالُوا subhanak, لَا إِلْمَ لَنَا إِلَّا مَا عَلَّمْتَنَا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْعَلِيمُ الْحَكِيمُ They say that glory is to you. We have no knowledge except what you have taught us. Indeed, you are the all-knowing. The one who has absolute knowledge, the all-wise. So the angels, they submit and they say, we only know what you have taught us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the knowledge of everything. And He gives portions of that knowledge to His slaves. So, alim is derived from ilm, which means knowledge. Now, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge? Allah ta'ala knows what is. He knows what was. He knows what will be. And He knows what could have been also. So, if we are... Uh, faced with a decision If we have two options in front of us Allah Ta'ala know, First of all He knows that that choice would have come to us We would have been in that situation Then He knows which option we'll choose And He knows all the results that will come from that He also knows what would have happened Had we chosen the other path That is the knowledge of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala Everything that was, everything that is, everything that will be Everything that could have been He knows all of it Imam Muzali rahimullah, he says that this includes everything. Everything that is apparent and hidden, everything that is minute and magnanimous, however small or big it may be. He knows the beginning and the ending of everything. He knows what is above, underneath. Every single thing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge of it. And another attribute, another aspect of the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in comparison to our knowledge. Because we think, okay, well we also have knowledge and we might attain a great amount of knowledge. However, our knowledge is derived from things that exist, whereas things that exist are derived from Allah Ta'ala's knowledge. So what happens? Our knowledge is based on things that exist. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala taught Adam Alayhisam. He created Adam Alayhisam, then He taught him the names of everything. Meaning those things were already in existence. Allah Ta'ala already created them. And then Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala teaches Adam Alayhisam those, those, about those things. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never had to be taught. He never had to be taught anything. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, يَعْلَمُ مَا بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَمَا خَلْفَهُمْ وَلَا يُحِيطُونَ بِشَيْءٍ مِّنْ عِلْمِهِ إِلَّا بِمَا شَاءٍ What does this come from? Ayatul Kursi, right? The, great, the greatest single verse in the Qur'an. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He knows, meaning the Ayatul Kursi is the verse, Kursi is like the footstool, right? In relation to the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is, this verse talks about many attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It teaches us about Allah. So Allah ta'ala, He says in this portion of the verse that He knows what is in front of them, He knows what is behind them, and nothing encompasses the knowledge of Allah ta'ala except what He wishes, except that which He wishes. Meaning we cannot have any understanding about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the knowledge of Allah except what He has allowed us to understand. 
This is the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so absolute. Our knowledge is on the surface of a few things, right? We, what, is, what do scientists say, marine biologists and everything? That there are more creations in the oceans than there are on earth. And how many creations are there on the land? We don't know. Right? If you take into account all the bugs and insects, the different types of trees and these types of things, it's amazing, right? Some of the biology classes you might take, it's amazing some of these things that exist that Allah Ta'ala has created. There's all kinds of... I remember in bio, a biology class I took, uh, we watched this video about this tree that's like this alien tree. It's a little seed that comes off of a tree and it lands on the branch of another tree. And instead of growing up or landing in the ground, it lands on the tree and then it grows down. Its root grows down and it hits the ground. As soon as it hits the ground, then it starts growing up. And it circles the tree like this host tree. Then it sucks all the nutrients out of the ground and it, it completely encompasses the host tree until the host tree dry, uh, dies because it doesn't have any nutrition left. And then you have this other tree that looks hollow, but it's not hollow. This is like this crazy alien tree that took over, <laughs> right? All these types of different creations, it's amazing. So our knowledge is limited to a few things, just on the surface of a few things. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his knowledge is completely absolute. Imam Razi rahimullah, who we've spoken about before, who was a great jurist and mufassir of the Qur'an, spoke about a lot of philosophical things as well in the Qur'an, a lot of linguistic uh, points he brought out. He says that we can distinguish Allah Ta'ala's knowledge from our own knowledge in six ways. Some of these seem like a little repetitive, but he says in six ways. Number one, that Allah Ta'ala knows everything, whereas we do not. We do not know everything. Allah Ta'ala's knowledge never changes, whereas ours does. Now what happens? You know, if you speak to, for example, if you look at medicine, there was a time when they said that, uh, uh, what's it called? For a mother to nurse her child, this is pretty recent, for a mother to nurse her child was not as healthy as using baby formula. Now they're starting to go back and saying, no, no, it's actually more healthy and better, more beneficial for the mother to nurse the child. Right? When you speak to people of old, the older generation, the past generation, about medicine, not about their, you know, whatever um, things that they found in their villages back in Pakistan, India, and wherever, you know, but actual um, things that they'd been told by doctors. And you compare that to what the doctors are saying now, oftentimes you'll find the past generation saying, oh, we didn't hear that. We also went to doctors, and the doctors were saying ABC. Now the doctor's saying X, Y, Z. And constantly, every, you know, however many decades, you'll find that medicine itself is changing. They find certain, they conclude on certain things and say this is better. Then later they conclude on other things and say, no, no, this, the first, what we said, you know, first was actually better. Then they flip back. The knowledge is always changing. Why? Because we base it on observation. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge is not based on observation. He says that third aspect is that Allah ta'ala's knowledge is not attained by employing the senses and intellect, whereas ours is. So this comes again through the method of observation. Right, now who, who knows what, this brings up an interesting point, who, who knows what scientism is? Anybody heard about scientism? Like scientism? No, no. <laughs> That's Satanism. <laughs> scientism. Have you guys at least heard of the word? You haven't? So scientism, it's not, sci it's not scientists, and it's not science, and it's not scientific. Scientism. Scientism is this idea that the whole universe is based on the world order of science. So how does science work? Science works by observing something. You've taken biology, chemistry, physics classes. What do you do? You experiment and you observe things. You mix you know, chemistry, you mix a couple of different chemicals together, and you watch it, and you see what happens. Right? 
So basically, scientism does not conclude on something unless it can be observed. Unless it can be observed, they, they push it aside. Right? That it's not possible or we can't adhere to it, we can't believe in it, unless it is, it can be observed. And obviously they look at religion like this, but then they look at everything else like this. So this is an interesting point because what are they doing? Imam Razi, so many, you know, hundreds of years ago, he said that our knowledge is attained by employing the senses, whereas Allah Ta'ala's knowledge is not attained by that. Because there was never a time that Allah Ta'ala did not know. Never a time that he did not know. There was never a time where he had to learn something. Right? He didn't have to, for example, some of the other scriptures might say that uh, you know, God created light and he saw that that was good. No, he didn't see that that was good. He knew that that was good already. <laughs> you know, this is our belief of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He didn't have to learn something. He didn't have to observe anything. He knows everything. So this concept of scientism that says that we cannot, uh, uh, we cannot you know, adhere to something except, we, except if we are able to observe it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, He already pushed this aside. He answered this concept of scientism, which is something that has come about today. What did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? In Surah Kahf, He says, مَا أَشَدُّهُمْ خَلْقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَلَا خَلْقَ أَنفُسِهِمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they did not أَشَدُّهُمْ That we did not allow them, we did not make them witness خَلْقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ The creation of the heavens and the earth. We did not ashhadu means we did not. It comes from shahida. So what do we say? Ashhadu la ilaha illallah. I bear witness. I testify. Right. This comes from the word same word as shahada. Right. To observe something. To see something. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says that we didn't create them and let them observe the creation of the heavens and the earth. So this idea that we can only adhere to a belief if we are able to observe it is completely erroneous. Because you, are not, you will not be able to, uh, if, if you deny everything unless you are able to observe it, then your knowledge will not really go anywhere. You know? And it's flawed also, because what does science say? That there, the earth is how many, what, trillions of years old, right? However many trillions of years old. Allah Allah, maybe it is trillions of years old. There's nothing in the Qur'an that goes contrary to that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But where do they observe that? There's no observation they made for that. You guys heard a few months ago when apparently they found the oldest copy of the Qur'an? You guys hear about this? When they carbon dated it, they said that, I think they said uh, it, it dates back to maybe around 60, 65 Hijri. 60, 65 years after the Prophet went to Medina Munawrah. So Rasulullah died in 11 Hijri, 10, 11 Hijri. Now when I heard about this, I thought that doesn't make sense because Uthman, he died 35 Hijri. He died 35 Hijri, and he died on his Qur'an. He was martyred, he was killed, he was assassinated whilst he was reading the Qur'an. And that Qur'an is in the museums of Turkey, and it's stained with his blood. So how could this copy of the Qur'an they found in some British library be the oldest copy when Turkey has one? Of Uthman, his copy of the Qur'an from back then. They carbon dated it, and they said that, you know, we put the time frame to about... 65 Hijri. So some people came out saying, see, when you compare that copy of the Qur'an to the copy of the Qur'an we have now, then what happens? You find that there is no difference in that Qur'an versus the Qur'an we have, the copies of the Qur'an we have today. So this proves that the Qur'an has not changed, it has not been altered. Others came and said, well, carbon dating is actually, there's a margin of error, I don't know, about either 60 years or 120 years each way. So if it was 65 Hijri, and it, there's a margin of error of like 80 years, 120 years, whatever it is. 
either way, either forward or back, then it's possible that this Qur'an was before the Prophet even was born. Therefore, it might, may have been written then, and then he found it and taught it and said it's the Word of God. So you're going to base your belief off of something that has a margin of error, that has a, such a big margin of error, 120 years, that gives you a 240-year gap, <laughs> right? This is not observation. We want to base things off of solely off of carbon dating and these types of things, the earth being trillions of years old. Fine, and maybe it's possible. But your idea that it has to be observed, well, it's flawed because the conclusions you've already made the that was one of the concepts of why, you know, that uh, in some of the Christian uh, theology, some of the, their scholars of the past had mentioned that the earth was like 5,000 or 10,000 years old or something like that. And it didn't make sense to science. So they said that, well, you know, th that, therefore the Bible is not true and Christianity has a fallacy and it's false and so on and so forth. However, you have no observation to say that it's trillions of years old. You have machines that may bring it, you know, accurate, may bring, you, bring, bring about some accurate number. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on, He says, وَلَا خَلْقَ أَنفُسِهِمْ That forget about us not allowing, we, they never witnessed the creation of the heavens and the earth. They didn't even witness their own, cre their own creation. Were they there to witness their own creation? And anfus can mean themselves, it can also mean the soul. Scientism also denies the soul because you can't see it. Right? So does it make sense that we simply believe in something only if we have seen it? It doesn't, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is the knowledge of Allah ta'ala. Ours is based on observation and experience. Allah ta'ala is not based on that. Imam Razi also goes on, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge is also necessary and it never disappears. And Allah ta'ala says, وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ نَسِيَّةً That your Lord is never forgetful. So Allah ta'ala never forgets anything and His, His knowledge is absolutely necessary. Whereas ours is not. Allah Ta'ala is never diverted by knowing one thing from another and He is, His knowledge is endless whereas we might forget something right, we might forget something and if we do forget something the world still goes on life still goes on your family still lives whereas if Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's knowledge was changing or if He was to forget something or if it wasn't necessary well then the whole universe probably would have imploded <laughs> so Allah Ta'ala's knowledge is absolutely necessary and then Imam Ghazali, he says that Allah Ta'ala is not only alim, but he's also alam. So we spoke about the balil form, the exaggerated form. Alam, although it's not mentioned as one of the 99 names, it is another, you can say it's uh, Allah Ta'ala is also alam. Because alam means a exaggerated form of alim. And he says that Isa Islam in the Quran, he mentions, he says, nafsi wala nafsik. That you know what is in me and I don't know what is within you. Innaka anta you are the one that has that most absolute knowledge of the unseen. Now, ilm is the foundation of Islam. The absolute foundation of Islam is ilm, knowledge. To embark on the path of knowledge is the greatest path you could embark on. It is higher than those that go and fight in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is higher than those who give millions and trillions of dollars in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is better than fasting. It is better than your however many tahajjud and nawafil you could make. The path of knowledge is the highest path. And who, the people who have knowledge, the ulama, hold the highest maqam and status in all of society. There's a poem that says that the ink of the, 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 ink of the scholars is weightier than the blood of the martyrs. Why do they say this? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Tawbah, He says, 
he gives permission to the Muslims that you've been persecuted so long by Quraysh and now I give you permission to fight them. Whereas up until then, however many years had passed, 13, 14 years had passed in prophethood, they were not allowed to lift a finger against the Quraysh. Now Allah Ta'ala says, now you can go and fight them. However, Allah Ta'ala also says at that same time, towards the end of Surah Tawbah, He says, but from, although you should go and fight, a group from, you, from, from amongst you should remain. So that when the people return, they may teach them and remind them uh, so that they do not become heedless. So that although people, the Muslims at that time, were told to go and fight, a group of them was told to stay back and learn. Because although you can go and, and, and give your life and your wealth in the path of Allah, when you come back, who is the one that is worthy of leading? It is those that stayed and learned. It is those that learned. Who was it that was cho- chosen for the Khilafah, for the successorship of Rasulullah It wasn't Khalid bin Walid radiallahu The greatest general of Islam never lost a battle in, 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 as a Muslim nor before Islam against the Muslims even. He wasn't chosen. Who was chosen? Abu Bakr radiallahu was chosen. And the Sahaba Ali radiallahu said, Umar radiallahu said, the Sahaba said that he is the most knowledgeable from amongst us. Ubay bin Ka'ab radiallahu, Rasulullah s.a.w. said, he is aqra of my ummah. He is the most knowledgeable in the qira'ah, the recitation of the Qur'an of my ummah. He wasn't chosen. Who was chosen? Abu Bakr radiallahu was chosen to be the leader of the Muslims. In a hadith, Rasulullah says something to the extent, Ma ubidallahu, that Allah Ta'ala has not been worshipped min uh, shay'in by anything, afdalu min ilmin, or sorry, min fiqhin, that Allah Ta'ala has not been worshipped by anything greater than understanding of the deen. Fiqh. Fiqh does not mean jurisprudence only, like those uh, things, per- those laws pertaining to uh, our worship and our transactions and these types of things. But fiqh here means having a holistic understanding of the religion, meaning in an aqidah sense, in a jurisprudence sense, in a spiritual sense, things about inheritance, things about uh, Quran and tafsir and hadith and everything, a holistic understanding of the religion. And there are very few people, very few people in the entire world who can say that they are a faqih that they have that holistic understanding of the religion. There was once upon a time when there were many people, right? Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, Imam Malik, Rahimahullah, so many different from amongst the Tabi'in. But now, it's, it's, there's very few people in the entire world that have that maqam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, La ya, uh, what does he say? إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءُ That the ones, he says, innama. Innama is what's called harfu hasr. Innama means, harfu hasr meaning it's restrictive. It is a particle that restricts everything other than what has been mentioned. Meaning everything, what it is about to mention is the exclusion. It excludes everything else. He says that the only ones who fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are the ulama. And the ulama, the ulama say that ulama here does not mean the scholars. It means people of knowledge. That if you have not, you can only fear Allah by having knowledge. That is the only time you are able to fear Allah Ta'ala truly, by, when, by gaining knowledge. So this doesn't mean you have to become a scholar, and if you're not a scholar, then you cannot say that you fear Allah. No, but by gaining knowledge, you will increase in your fear of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, your taqwa of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. Rasulullah said, Innal ulama warathatul anbiya. That the inheritors of the prophets are the anbiya. Wala yuwarithu, uh, 
that they did not leave as inheritance gold and silver or any type of monetary gain. But what did they leave behind? That they left behind knowledge. And whoever takes a share has taken a great share. And Rasulullah said that the, what one, one alim, one scholar is more detrimental to shaitan, to iblis, to the devils, than a thousand worshippers. Why? This is the status of ilm. Why? Because a thousand worshippers might worship Allah Ta'ala incorrectly. A thousand worshippers might bring innovation into the deen. You know, so for example, some people say, uh, uh, recently we told people that you, know, you should go and study, there's these classes being offered. And they said, well, you know, we said that there's these classes being offered. You learn what is required of you, what breaks your salah, what, what, how to make your wudu properly, how to cleanse yourself properly, what breaks your salah, what breaks your wudu, what breaks your fast, uh, how to make it complete. This individual said, well, I think concentration is better in salah than knowing what breaks my salah. That's ridiculous. That shows the level of ignorance that people have. Because even if you have a great amount of concentration while you're in salah, if you don't know what breaks your salah, then it's useless. Because what if you've broken your salah? Right? What if you've broken your salah? Then your concentration is useless. <laughs> right? So we have to learn. We have to learn. And so the, the scholars, when they learn, they keep innovation out of the deen. They keep innovation, bid'at, false worship, all these things outside of the deen. They, they should tell us that what is a bid'ah? What is an innovation? What is an acceptable innovation? For Umar radiallahu when he, when he anhu, when he, when he said the 20 rak'ah of taraweeh and he had the sahaba congregate and make it as one, he came in the masjid and saw it happening and he said, what a fine innovation this is. What a fine bid'ah this is. So the scholars, they have knowledge of what things did Rasulullah not do that we are allowed to do and what things did he not do that we are not allowed to do. And what things did he do that people think they're doing something similar, but it's actually an innovation. The scholars keep these things out. The scholars keep these things out of the deen. And so ilm is the, and there's so many, the virtues, the fadail of ilm are so high. A person can give trillions of dollars. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Baqarah, He says what? That a person might uh, give a person, the, the, the virtue or the reward of an individual who gives Sadaqah uh, in the path of Allah right? They give charity Their reward is He compares it to like the grains of corn That you have one grain of corn And from that sprouts so many different uh, Cobs and, corn and, and plants and whatnot And all of those have so many different grains And Allah Ta'ala says that your reward is multiplied by 700 times 700 here doesn't mean that by 700 times It means an infinite amount An infinite amount for giving charity in the path of Allah But even that those people, they still have to submit to the ulama. The ulama are still the leaders, not the people who give in charity. Right? So the path of ilm is so, that's why the, this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala carries so much weight. Carries so much weight. And so, <clears throat> Imam Ghazali rahimullah, he mentions that. He says that it is hardly a secret that man has a share in the attribute of knower. Yet man's knowledge is different from that of God the Most High in three specific ways. First, regarding the multitude of things known. Because our knowledge is limited, whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge, He knows everything. And His knowledge is wide-ranging and infinite. Secondly, that man's disclosure, while clear, does not reach the goal beyond which no goal is possible. Rather, his seeing of things is like seeing them behind a thin veil. So, 
his understanding of something is still limited. He might think, okay, if I do A, B, and C, then X, Y, and Z will happen. Most likely it will happen, but that's not necessarily, not necessarily the case. And he says that thirdly, the knowledge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the knowledge that he has is of things that is not derived from things, but things are derived from it. So we mentioned that in the beginning as well. While man's knowledge of things is contingent upon things and results from them. So our knowledge is based on what exists, whereas what exists is based on the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he gives an example of somebody who creates some type of invention, right? That person is more knowledgeable about that specific invention. So he uses the example of chess. A person who creates, who created the game of chess, he has a better understanding of that game who simply learns the game of chess. Because the person who learns it, his knowledge is based on the thing after it was created. Whereas the person who made it, he made it based on his own knowledge. So his knowledge of this thing, this game, came first. Right? So this is his comparison that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge was first and then everything else came into existence. And this is why the, the path of ilm, this is something that we are probably lacking in so much, so much as a community. We don't even understand what ilm is. We say, what is ilm? We think going to a conference is the, is the, is the uh, uh, what's it called? Dissemination of knowledge. Going to a conference is not the dissemination of knowledge. Whether you go to the, you know, the Mihrab conference, whether you go to Ilmfest, whether you go to whatever, you know, Ikna, Isna, RIS, all these different conferences that happen, if you ask the speakers, is this dissemination of knowledge? They're all going to say no. Yes, there is some knowledge that's gained, no doubt, right? And there is a benefit. But you cannot really say that, yeah, I have Ilm after having gone to this conference. You might have, you might have learned something, but the path of knowledge is to sit down and formally learn the sciences of Islam. This is the path of knowledge. And the ilm that is intended here is ilm of the deen, not ilm of, not ilm of the world. Not ilm of the world. Although that is, has its place, and we already mentioned, right? We don't completely leave the, the worldly things. But the virtue of knowledge is the knowledge of Islam, the intricacies of Islam in the Quran, not the sciences. Because when Rasulullah, what did he say? That the ulama are the inheritors of the anbiya. So what books of science and physics and biology and chemistry did the Anbiya leave? They didn't leave any of that stuff. It's Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Imran and Surah Nisa. It's not, you know, the Surah of biology and the Surah of chemistry and the Surah of physics. Although there's great virtue, right? I'm not telling you guys like, oh, quit school and this, that, whatever. No, there's a lot of benefit that you can, you can contribute to society. Right, what did we mention for Fatah? That you help others. So right, you help others and you open a way for them. So Allah Ta'ala opens a way for you. So your different, you know, your, your aspirations and the gains in, in worldly knowledge will help you do that thing, will help, can help you with the right intentions and the right actions, bring the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But know that the ilm of deen is the highest level, has the absolute most virtue of anything else, than anything else. And so this is why the ulama hold the highest maqam. And those that can hold the maqam, both of what the outward sciences and the inward sciences, their maqam, their status is higher than even everyone else. Because then they are able to guide people. They're the ones that are able to keep innovations out. They're the ones that know how to reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And where should knowledge lead you? Knowledge should lead you to taqwa. Should lead you to taqwa. That there's a story of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimullah. A person walked in the masjid and asked him, he said, what, you know, there's a certain uh, uh, vegetable. And if I squeeze it, there's a juice that comes out of this vegetable. Can I make wudu with that? with that water that comes out of that vegetable. So Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who was known to be, have memorized one million hadith. 
one million hadith. In my final year, we, we read eight or nine books of hadith. Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawood, Ibn, Ibn Majah, the Muatta, Imam Malik, Imam Muhammad. It was probably like 55, 60,000 hadith we read in our final year. He memorized a million hadith. Can we even fathom how many hadith there are? <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, some of them were repetitions and whatnot because of different chain and those are technical issues. But one million hadith. What was his answer? He said, I prefer you don't. I prefer you don't make wudu with that water. He didn't say, yes, you can or no, you can't. Whereas what happens? We stand up. Yes, you can because of, you know, whatever. No, you can't because this is my reasoning. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, he said, I prefer you don't make wudu with that water. Then he calls the person, he says, look, do you know the du'a for coming into the masjid and leaving the masjid? No. Do you know the du'a for going into the bathroom and out of the bathroom? No. He asks him a few of these basic questions. He says, go and learn those things that apply to you every single day. Then come and ask these other abstract questions. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal also some of his students, they would come and they would sit with him and they would see that one individual, he just kind of comes and he prays, he listens a little bit, then he leaves. He doesn't really sit and, and, and he's not a student of Imam Ahmed. So they said, you know, he's, look at how much he's missing out on. Imam Ahmed called them, his students, and he said, you know, I heard what you were saying. Although he doesn't come and learn from me, he has. First of all, this individual had, a, had the basic knowledge which he's required to have. Then he said that this individual has the fruit of knowledge, which is taqwa. He is aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is knowledge that is fard ayn and there's knowledge that is fard kifaya. Fard kifaya is a communal obligation. So as long as there is someone in the community who has knowledge of a certain thing, the whole rest of the community is absolved from it. So there are certain actions which are fard kifaya. For example, if somebody dies, to pray the funeral prayer over them. It's a fard kifaya over the community. So if nobody does it, then the entire community is held sinful. But if one person does it, the whole community is absolved from it. Then there's things which are fard ayn. Every single person is required to know it. These are things required, like, how many of us know what the arkan of wudu are? How many of us know what arkan even means? Right? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. <laughs> how many of us know what's required in our wudu? How many of us know what breaks our wudu? How to break our ghusl? Or sorry, what breaks our ghusl? When do we need to perform our ghusl? How do we perform our ghusl? How do we pray? What breaks our salah? What doesn't break our salah? So many different things. I can walk in the masjid and you'll see at the time of Jummah, six or seven people right in front of you that their salah is breaking and they don't even know it. Right off the bat, you'll see this, right? These things, knowledge of these things is required upon us. Every single person has to know it. You don't have to be a scholar of the deen. You don't have to be a scholar. But you have to, and there's certain things that we have to know. And this is the highest stage. That the maqam of a person who knows, what happens? Imam Muhammad was a student of Imam Abu Hanifa and the stepfather and teacher of Imam Shafi. He was known to not sleep very much. So the people asked him, why don't you sleep? He said, because in the night I have to continue my research of these different you know, questions and answers and these types of things. Because if I slept, then who would answer your questions during the day? The ulama mentioned that that staying awake, that few moments that the scholar spends in the night going over these different knowledges of Islam is more rewarding than an individual who's not a scholar but spends the entire night in tahajjud. That's the maqam of the ulama. That's the maqam that ilm brings because of this attribute of alim of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we should all try to embark on this path to that which is to the extent that is required of us at least. Right? And if we don't have knowledge, people come and ask, oh, I, you know, uh, how do I call the people? How do I give da'wah to non-Muslims? How do I give da'wah to Muslims? 
If you don't have knowledge, how do you know what to call them? How do you know how to call them? How do you know what to call them towards? There's no hard and fast rule, right? Sometimes people are ready to hear something. Sometimes people are not ready to hear something. So you have to be able to figure that out and give them what they're ready for and bring them along, right? Bring them along. There's certain things that are... Um, that will be relaxed on, certain rulings that will be relaxed on because of the situation a person is in. Ali radiallahu anhu was, somebody came to him, right? He's known as what? Waqdahum uh, Ali, the most, uh, the most just of my ummah is Ali radiallahu anhu. That Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, when he was the Khalifa, he made Ali radiallahu anhu the first chief justice of Islam, the first judge, the first qadi of Islam was Ali radiallahu by Umar radiallahu anhu, he appointed him. Somebody comes to Ali radiallahu anhu and they said, they asked him, they said, uh, you know, is there forgiveness for killing a man? And he said, no, there isn't. And another individual came to him and said, is there forgiveness for killing a man? He said, what, what would stand between you and the forgiveness of Allah? So the people that overheard this, they asked him, they said, you gave two contradicting answers, contradictory answers to, the same, to two different people. Why did you do that? He said, because the first person was looking for, he was looking for a license to kill. The other one had already done it and was seeking a path back to Allah. He understood the situation. He had knowledge. He gave a ruling based on that. He gave the person, not a ruling, he gave them advice based on that. He told, if, if he had told the first person, yes, there is, the person would have said, okay, I'll just kill someone that I'm angry at and then I'll, I'll repent. Whereas the second person had already done it and was looking for a way to back to Allah. Yeah. So is that basically just saying you can lie about religion? No, that's not lying about religion, right? That was him using his hikmah and his wisdom. That he was protecting one, one person had already committed a sin and Ali Radno was opening the path for him to come back to Allah because he knew that if, if he said, because there is forgiveness, right? There is forgiveness for everything, right? Except for shirk. And if a person, if you wrong an individual, then that person has to forgive you also. So Ali Radno was telling him that, yeah, there is, Allah Ta'ala can forgive you for it. It's within Allah Ta'ala's mercy and his bounty to forgive you. The next per, the other person, had he been told that, yeah, there is forgiveness for it, he would have gone in, killed him, killed this individual. So what would have happened? His repentance would not have been sincere. Ali Radno, he recognized this. This person's repentance would not have been sincere. Because you can't just say, I'm going to sin. All the ulama are muttafiq, right? They will agree. That you can't say, okay, I'm going to, yeah, I'll go do this sin now, and then I'll just ask for forgiveness. Your sin is not, your, your repentance is not accepted in that moment, right? If that is your method of acting and, and seeking repentance. Yeah. So, uh, there was a great sheikh of Pakistan. He's, he's known as Allama Anwar Shah Kashmiri, rahimullah. He was known as a walking library. He had so he memorized books upon books, which in Pakistan, India, it was something rare. In Mauritania, it's common. When he his graduating class, right, who had studied for eight years or twelve years at the time, eight years I think, his address to them, their commencement speech, you can say. He addressed them, he said, he said, oh, the most ignorant people. He used the term juhal, a superlative, from the word jahil. Not that you are ignorant, but you are more, the most ignorant of people to his graduating class after eight years of study, formal study. Why did he say this? He said, because now you know what you don't know. Now you are able to go and study on your own after eight years, six years, ten years of this formal study. That, like I did a six-year course. That is there to put a foundation in you so that you can now look at the different texts and know what foundation is there and you can understand how the ulama interpret it according to Ahl sunnah wal jamaah So first, you have to have a teacher. You have to have a teacher. Right? There are certain books, yeah, you can read without 
you know, necessarily having formally studied. But having a teacher is absolutely important. Absolutely important. Because sometimes you might misunderstand something, right? There's books that have been written that even the ulama are told, you shouldn't read this book without a teacher. Because unless you're very firmly, like for example, we discussed Imam Razi, right? One of his students was Imam Zamakhshari. So Zamakhshari was a Mu'tazili. Meaning, the Mu'tazili were this sect of Islam that has generally died out now, but some of their ideology still remain. They basically, they believe that the Qur'an was the creation of Allah, not the word of Allah. They believe that if you sin, you, you leave the fold of Islam. They believe that, um, they basically, if it didn't make logical sense to them, they rejected it. They rejected it. Um, whereas we say that wahi begins where logic ends. So Imam Zamakhshari in his tafsir, he brings a lot of Mu'tazili views. Now if you read that without having a firm grasp of Aqidah, you might read it and be like, oh man, he was a great alim. You know, he's going to, this makes sense. Logically, what he's saying makes sense. Whereas some of his views would be completely rejected. You know what I mean? So even Tajweed, right? If somebody's not listening to our tajweed, we might think we're reciting correctly, but it's not getting refined. We don't, we don't actually know if we're reciting it correctly, right? So you have to have a teacher first. <laughs> you have to have a teacher first. There are certain things that you'll pick up, right? There are certain things that are written for like tarbiyah aspects, um, right? For nurturing and upbringing of your ideas and your, um, just how to be like to, to uplift your character. Those things are generally like, okay, you, just, you can read them. You, should, you can still have a teacher. Like, I mean, some of the things that Imam Ali, this is what, basically what he's doing with this book, right? Most, a lot of his texts are about um, improving your character. But um, some of those things are confusing also. So when it comes to those things that are required for us to know, like what pertains to our fast, what pertains to our salah, our tahara, these types of things, I wouldn't recommend doing any of that on your own, right? There are some basic books that are written, and you can get a certain amount of understanding, but you should seek out a teacher for that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so apparently there's a muhaddith in Jordan, and he's like teaching on Skype to people. Like, would, would that be like accredited, like learning off of Skype? Like someone uh, so you know, not uh, seeking knowledge on online is it's okay, right? Because sometimes you don't have access to ulama. Okay, so it's okay, but um, if you can, you should try to go to the company of the of the individual. So, like, there's a lot of the fardain we talked about. You can learn it online, right? There's a lot of programs that you can learn it online. And so, if you are not able to go in person to somebody, at least do that, right? But you mean, what do you mean by? You mean would we would you be considered a scholar after having done it? Yeah, like like if if you studied like six years or eight years or on over many years, but it was like on a video video calling. Because I know someone that that is doing that. I mean, why would it be considered? It's I mean it's 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 it might be good knowledge, right? It might be good knowledge, but. And not to say that they wouldn't be very knowledgeable. So like the same Alama Anusha Kashmiri, he told those same students, he said that you are now students of knowledge. So after eight years, you have become a student of knowledge. You know? And so that's one thing that we are so caught up with. Uh, sheikh this, sheikh that, I'm a sheikh, this person is a sheikh. Everyone's a sheikh, right? You grow a beard and like, oh, he's a sheikh. You know? No, like, that's not the case. Sheikh Salik, who came, he studied formally for 15 years in Mauritania. He's, he is Mauritanian. He, he's memorized probably more books than you and I could carry combined, without exaggeration. He's memorized word for word, right? Forget memorizing the Qur'an, like, that's like child's play, you know? 
memorized books upon books upon books, huge texts memorized word for word. We would ask him a question and he would look at us and then he would start reciting the book in his mind, like out loud. And then he'd come to the answer and be like, this is the answer, right? He was so, he's been living in America for like 12 or 15 years now. He was like, yeah, everybody, everybody here is a sheikh. It's like, these people are not sheikhs, they are da'is. They're people who give da'wah, they are teachers, but they're not scholars, most of the people. You know what I mean? So, scholarship, we've, we've cheapened the term of scholar. You know? Six years, seven years, eight years of study, you can become a student of knowledge. Right? Now they have courses, oh, you did a two-year course, I'm a mufti. You're not a mufti. You have the tools to become a mufti. You have the tools to become a mufti. One of my teachers, he said, unless you are active in the field of giving fatwa for 10 years, I won't consider you a mufti. You know? Somebody does a specialization in hadith. Oh, he's a muhaddith. No, he's not. He's a mutakhassis fil hadith. He's somebody who has specialized in hadith. He is not a muhaddith, right? These are certain things like, unless we have knowledge, we won't understand them. But don't worry about chasing after titles and this and that. Be content with being a student of knowledge. And so then, although it's not a hadith, but you seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave. Yeah. What about like alima courses? Where like you're courses? Yeah. Yeah, so that's like an alim. Alima is the feminine of alim, right? right? So a female scholar. So it's the same as an alim course. What do you mean? Okay, so like, so at the Malik Masjid, they kind of have one forum of like six years long, I think. So are you considered an alim? Yeah, so that's like the same type of thing, right? So like I did the alim course, which was six years. But like our teachers would tell us, you are now students of knowledge. You have the tools to become in alim or in alima, you know? And depends on the level of the student also, right? Depends on the level of the student. These are all good programs and these are great endeavors. This is the path of knowledge, right? This is the path of knowledge, being a student of knowledge, you know? So these are all great programs, you know? And especially like the women, we need a lot more women scholars. There's, there's not enough male scholars or scholars in general, but we need a lot of more female scholars also because there's a lot of women's issues and, and then there's just a different perspective Right? So that's something that everybody should consider. What, what are your kind of advice and like basic steps we can do like for our students and kind of for what the steps can take in the path of that knowledge? So, you know, there are programs around the community. So, for example, like Mehrab Foundation, we've started offering classes on the weekend, right, which is a registered course, um, three hours on a Saturday. And inshallah, it'll continue. Um, it's for your fardain. It's to learn what is what you're required to know, and it is very intense. You can do programs like that. You can seek out ulama. You can, you know, do those types of things. We can even, you know, like I mean, when I was in college, we used to, we used to do books on the weekend. You know, we'd have a, a or like once a week, we'd have an aqidah course. You know, with somebody who had studied. He wasn't even a scholar, but he had studied, right? And he'd been given permission to teach that that book. So we would study with them. Like we can set up those types of programs. Or there are online programs, you can do online programs also, you know. Uh, you don't have to do like a whole alim course, alima course. You can just do like Seeker's Guidance, for example. Seeker's Hub, they have, you know, you can register for different courses. Ilm Essentials, they have like one, two, three, four courses, whatever. You can take these things. Yeah. So the best thing is to seek out somebody in your localities. Um, and then after that, if you can't, then, you know, try to do it online. But the reason this person-to-person, um, -person, like in the presence of a teacher, is so important is because that's when you gain a better understanding of deen. 
Usually, right? There's always exceptions to that rule, but usually that's that's the case. So seek out people in your own localities, you know? If you guys have an idea, even as an MSA, like we can do something, you know? Like I, we can we can turn this class into an Aqidah class if you guys want it, you know what I mean? We can turn it into an Aqidah class. But Sheikh Qasim did that before a few years ago, and people said that like that was too... Because obviously like you guys aren't able to make every single class, and formal sciences, they usually build on each other. Right, so like aqidah is something from the beginning to end, it builds on itself. So if you miss a class or miss two classes, you're going to be really lost. So that's why it, like, it wouldn't be beneficial necessarily to do it in this type of situation, but we could set something up like that, you know. The best thing is to seek out the, the local ulama. Yeah. Any other questions? Right, we could probably could have done another name, but I went on a tangent because knowledge is something that's undermined these days. And like we try to turn everything, any hadith that doing regarding ilm, we try to turn it into. There's a fabricated hadith that says, the Prophet said that uh, whoever, uh, if, if, if ilm was to be, if knowledge was to be in China, then you should seek it. So people come and say, see, there was no Islam in China. That means you should go and learn maths and sciences and these types of things. First of all, it's, a, it's agreed upon by the majority of people that this is a fabricated hadith. It's not even a weak hadith, it's a fabricated hadith. But even if it was real, it would mean that even if knowledge was that difficult for you to attain, that you had to go all the way to China to attain it, you should, go, you should strive to attain that knowledge, you know? But we want to change all, everything to be like math and engineering, and, you know? No offense to anybody who's doing math and engineering. It's, like, it's a great endeavor, inshallah. There's a lot of benefit you can give to people. <coughs> وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم انت السلام انك السلام تبارك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام سمعنا وطعنا غفرانك ربنا وليك المصير اللهم اغفر لنا ذنوبنا وطهر قلوبنا وحسن فروجنا اللهم, اللهم أغننا بالعلم وزيننا بالحلم وأكرمنا بالتقوى وجمنا بالعافية اللهم إننا نسألك من خير ما أسألك منه نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذ منه نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم يا الله forgive us for we have sinned يا الله guide us and rectify our hearts and our souls and our outwardly and inwardly Protect us and protect our progeny and forgive us and forgive our families. Guide us and guide our families, Ya Allah. Let us all die with Iman, Ya Allah. Ya Allah, let us be those people that are pleasing to you. Ya Allah, we beg of you of all the good that Rasulullah begged you for and we seek refuge in you from all the evil that he sought refuge in you from. Subhana rabbika rabbil azzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.